A couple of months ago, all of the church staff was packing up boxes to move our offices from across the street over to here. And while I was packing the boxes, it hit me that I've developed a Bible collection. This is one of those things that started off when I came on staff, I probably had about five or six different translations. And by the time I made my way over to here, there were two boxes full of Bibles. They're different translations, my favorite being, well, NIV and NRSV, and this is one of my true treasured items where my grandmother gave this to me the day after our house burned to the ground when I was in eighth grade. I ought, it's had to go through a couple of rebindings because a Bible that is falling apart is a sign of a life that is not. Now, I'm going to ask you, though, to pick up your Bible or your Romans journal. I don't want you to open it yet but just look at it. And if you're joining us online, I'd invite you to do the same. Just hold this, look it over. Look at what this Bible is. This is a book that we can read in English. Rather than needing to translate it out of Greek or Hebrew, or if you're like me and took way too many years of Latin, being able to read the old Latin Vulgate version. And being able to read this Bible in English is a great blessing that we have. But it's a blessing that came to us out of hardship. I want to introduce you to one of the faces of that hardship. This is William Tyndale. In 1520, just a three short years after the birth of the Protestant Reformation, Tyndale was introduced to Martin Luther's theology. And there was an item in Luther's writing that just caught fire with him. And it was the belief that the Bible should be accessible to be read by everyone by having it translated into their common language, which for Tyndale meant English. So within about two or three years of having that fire catch hold of him, Tyndale had translated the New Testament out of Greek into English, and within five years he had taught himself Hebrew, and teaching yourself Hebrew is not an easy feat, and he did the same with the Old Testament. Unfortunately though, Tyndale's actions violated a British law called the Constitutions of Oxford, which prohibited the translation of the Bible into English. So Tyndale fled to the European continent where he worked with publishers and printers to have his work, his life's work that we now call the Tyndale Bible, printed. And he did this while he was being pursued by agents of the church who sought to arrest him and his compatriots and to destroy his work. Ultimately, in 1535, Tyndale was arrested, stood trial, and the next year on October 6th, 1536, he was executed by being strangled, burned at the stake, and then be, having his body blown apart by gunpowder. But his final words before he went to his execution were, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Even up to his death, Tyndale sought the good of his nation and the desire to have the Bible be able to be read in English. And we can thank him for this book that we get to hold in our hands. So Tyndale still sought to share God's grace with a people who he didn't know and with a people who he would never know. And amidst the life of a fugitive, times of persecution, and ultimately a death that most of us don't even want to contemplate. But for many of us, this idea of grace is one that's a lot harder for us to grab hold of. So let's together now I'm going to ask you to actually open that Bible, I ask you to just hold, and let's turn to the fifth chapter of Romans where we're going to be looking at the first 11 verses. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Please pray with me. May the same Holy Spirit that inspired the writing and preservation of these words inspire them for our hearts and minds today. As we're in the midst of an in-depth study of Paul's letter to the, the church in Rome, we're looking at this book through sort of a four-part lens. The first three chapters we talked about and we described as what a mess. They show us just how truly depraved the church in Rome was and when we're honest, that we still are. Chapters four through seven are, we're calling what a gift, and these are pointing us towards the immensity of God's grace, and I'm going to be very honest, I'm glad I'm preaching on this section, not the first one. In a few weeks, we're going to start examining chapters eight through 11, and we're calling this what a God, and this is going to help us to see that love is stronger than our circumstances. And then as we come right up to Advent, that moment that we're looking towards the birth of Jesus we're going to look at the final five chapters of the book, What a Difference, to see how close peace exists in proximity to us. Now, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. In the fourth chapter of Romans, Paul shared that our righteousness in the eyes of God is dependent upon our faith, which we need to remember that where we are, being made right in the eyes of God, is based on faith, which means that our justification, the fancy theological term that means that we have been forgiven is an act of God's grace, not based on anything that we have done, and really not based on anything that we could ever do. Now, it's important for us to remember that fact that our justification, our salvation, is not something that we have done. So I want to invite you to go through a little thought experiment. Close your eyes if it helps, and think about your day thus far. Think about the time since you got up this morning and try to condense down those couple of hours into the things you've said and done, and the things you've thought. Now try to categorize those actions. What were the good things? What were the bad things? Now let's imagine that in front of us each is a scale that might look a little bit like this one. And I want you to put all of the good things on one side of that scale. All of the things that are not so good on the other side of the scale. Which way is your scale gonna tip? Now instead of it just being today, try to imagine that it's all of your lives. Which way is that scale going to tip? I know which way my scale would go. 
And it's a truth I don't really like to admit. Now, normally, this situation where we realize that we can't do this would leave us with a choice where we tend to take one of two approaches. We would seek to either wipe out our sin through sacrifice, or we could take a nihilistic view that nothing that we can do matters. Now, the first approach was the one that the ancient Israelites followed. They would go to the temple, and they would offer an appropriate sacrifice for the things that they shouldn't have done, and they had the view that the innocent blood of those animals that were sacrificed would pay the blood debt that they owed to God. The other approach is one that we can see when we look at the world around us, where people tend to take an attitude that if we can't overcome our sin or if God's not really out there, let's simply live into the hedonism of the world more fully, for we're all doomed anyway. But neither of those two options really work. And as I think about how they don't work, I think of the words of Psalm 50, where the psalmist approaches both of them throughout that psalm, and he first tackles the idea behind sacrifice. Listen, my people, and I will speak. I will testify against you, Israel. I am God, your God. I bring no charges against you concerning your sacrifices or concerning your burnt offerings, which are ever before me. I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle of a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. But that psalm continues a little later on by sort of tackling that idea of not worrying about your sin. But to the wicked person, God says, what right have you to recite my laws or take my covenant on your lips? You hate my instruction and cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you join with him. You throw in your lot with adulterers. You use your mouth for evil and harness your tongue to deceit. You sit and testify against your brother and slander your own mother's son. When you did these things and I kept silent, you thought I was exactly like you, but I now arraign you and set my accusations before you. Consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you to pieces with no one to rescue you. Now, either of these options would leave us diametrically opposed to God, where the blood of countless sacrifices would still leave us unrighteous, and a desire to delve ever further and deeper in sin would continue to leave us ever further alienated from God. But instead, we have been justified by faith, and in that justification, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Now, we have been justified by faith, and we have peace with God. But what does that really mean? Do our words bring us to faith? Do our actions do so? Now, Karl Barth had a way of trying to explain this, and for those of you who are not familiar with Barth, he was a dense writer. So you're going to have a dense quote to go with a dense writer. But all that, and especially the naming of the name of Jesus Christ, simply points us to a riddle which confronts every human. Because it is the grace of God the coming of God to man which is grounded only in itself and can be known only by itself, the taking place of the atonement, willed and accomplished by him. That means that we receive the grace of God when in faith we can call upon Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Yet even to have that faith, the Holy Spirit must ignite our hearts 
to be willing to accept Jesus. It's the joint action of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together in a way that can almost feel as though it's a, it violates the first law of thermodynamics. It makes this perpetual grace-making machine. And that's what's so difficult for so many of us. None of this is dependent upon us. We cannot have faith without the intercession of the Spirit. We cannot earn the grace that God so lavishly pours down upon us. We cannot in any way, shape, or form accomplish this of our own volition. Which is also why it can be so difficult for us to accept grace. Especially when we're in the midst of times that aren't as easy in our lives. So I'm going to ask you to think about a a hypothetical situation. Let's pretend, because I'm sure none of us have ever had these situations, that you've had a heated discussion with your spouse or significant other. I'm already seeing some knowing looks going on. I'm glad I'm not sitting on some people's couches at home watching right now where the elbows might fly a little harder. Or you might have had one of those discussions with a coworkers where things didn't go the way you wanted. And you might have said something that you wish you hadn't said and you feel like you need to make amends for that whole issue. Even though the other half of this discussion has said that everything's fixed, that everything's fine, and that all the issues have been settled without any hard feelings. We, sometimes, we will still feel as though we need to do something to fix the situation. So if it's a spouse or significant other, we might feel like we need to buy flowers or chocolate or fix a special dinner And if it's a coworker, we might say, you know, we'll help you out with that project that we have nothing to do with. Because we want to feel like we have earned that forgiveness. Now remember, this is hypothetical. None of us have ever done this. But that's where so many of us feel as though we are. We have this difficult time accepting grace of feeling as though we're worthy of accepting it. Which is one of the most honest feelings that we can have. For we have to remember that we are not worthy of this grace. Not in and of ourselves. Grace is a gift. Grace is the greatest gift that we could have ever been given. And it's a gift that had to be bought. So at this point we need to jump ahead in Romans 5 down to verse 6 to really understand what it was that occurred that allowed for us to receive this grace. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would be willing to die, would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I just want you to imagine again that you have that scale in front of you. Try to get that mental image in your mind. Would you say that your scale is in a place where you could possibly consider to not be a sinner? If you're like me and you have anything on the sinful side, guess what? You're a sinner. So since there's nothing that we can do to overcome our sinful nature, we're still left with the challenge of not being worthy. We must turn again to the idea that something must be done to obviate our sin. And the hard answer to what could be done is that God still desired a sacrifice just not one of the blood of lambs or goats, for they could never be enough to wipe out our sin. 
Rather, it would take the blood of the only innocent person ever, Jesus Christ. But Paul reminds us that someone will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good one, one would dare to die. Now, I'm not a righteous person. I've been accused occasionally of being self-righteous, and though I try to be a good person, I know that I don't get it right, and I fail more than I'd like. There's no reason why anyone should be willing to die on my behalf. Yet God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We aren't worthy of that sacrifice. We don't deserve it. And it isn't something that we could ask for him to do on our behalf. Yet Jesus did so. Jesus looked upon humanity and he knew that it would only be through his free choice that we could be set free. It had to be his choice not our own. The act of salvation was completely and totally outside of what we could do. And the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, summed it up in a wonderful way by saying that man by his fall into a state of sin hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. What that means for us, simply put, is that grace can only be through God's action, through his sovereignty, through his choice. God made that choice. God chose us. God chose you. God chose me. I want you to remember that. I want you to hear that again. God chose to not simply look at us as our sin. Think what that means for you and I. When God looks at us, he does not simply look at us as the sum total of the things that we've done that have been wrong. He doesn't look at us as just sin. He looks at us through grace-colored glasses. God knows that we are not righteous. There's an 18th century revivalist preacher who I first read when I was taking a ninth grade English class named Jonathan Edwards. How many of you have ever read Jonathan Edwards? I'm a little worried about the state of American education right now. There's a piece in his most famous sermon that's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God that has always stood out to me. In the sermon, Edwards described the way that God should look at us. And he wrote that the God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath toward you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into that fire. He is of purer eyes than to bury you in his sight. You are 10,000 times as abominable in his eyes as the most hateful venomous serpent is, in hours. And I don't like snakes. So that one always speaks to me a lot. But that's not how God truly sees us. He sees something deeper. He sees something better, not because of what we have done, but because he chose that at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That loathsome insect being held over the fire is instead a beloved son or daughter to God. The most hateful, venomous serpent is the most cared-for member of our family. That is grace. 
That is the power that God has to take us from how we should be seen to instead see us in a way that we are made new and whole. We were saved by Christ's sacrifice. We are made anew in Jesus' image by his death on the cross. We were given grace that abounds upon us that is offered anew with each breath that we take that showers down upon us without ceasing. Now, a few weeks ago, Chuck stood right right where I am, and in his message, he shared with y'all a prayer that he'll often pray, and it's one that I've often used as well in my devotional time, and it's a prayer that God would allow him to see himself through God's eyes for the last 24 hours. I have to clarify, when I pray the same prayer, I'm asking God to show me me, not Chuck, because none of us want to know what Chuck has done. (laughs) But when I offer this prayer, I always hear a voice in the back of my head, that nudging of the Holy Spirit that's telling us, telling me that even as I have done things I wish I shouldn't, God doesn't see me as the sum total of my sin. God sees me through his eyes of grace, through eyes of forgiveness, And what that means for us is that this whole act of grace reminds us of God's sovereignty. That his choice is what matters. And because he made that choice, not only do we have new and unending life, we have salvation, justification, a freedom from the wages of sin that are death that can only occur through the full action of God. While grace has been given to us, it was not without cost just not a bill that we could ever pay. Christ died for us, the ungodly. Jesus suffered pain and humiliation as the only righteous man was beaten to within an inch of his life, as he was mocked, as he suffered tortures that most of us cannot even begin to comprehend. And then he walked the road to Golgotha. He was nailed to a cross. And after three hours of slowly being able to breathe less and less, he died. His sacrifice paid for our grace. His suffering bore our sins. His humiliation and pain showed a love for us that we could not comprehend. For while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus did not go to the cross for people who were good. In the sight of his contemporaries, it was the good people, the righteous people who arrested him, who encouraged his execution For while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What a gift we've been given. But there's this one little misunderstanding about grace that can occur here. While grace is dependent upon God, it's a gift from him. That doesn't mean that we can't strive toward living into that gift. Since Rich isn't here, I feel like we would be unwise to not have a Dallas Willard quote. And so I stole a line from, from Rich while he, we were at a leadership retreat a couple of weeks ago, and he shared these words that I just had to, to give to us. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Grace, you know, does not just have to do with forgiveness of sin alone. Grace is a state of mind. It's a state that we share with others that we offer to others, that we show to those around us with how we live each day. 
not for ourselves, not feeling that we have to earn our place or others need to earn theirs, but that we are all made whole, made righteous by this great gift. And this gift is one that we can share. It's one that we can share not out of any requirement that we respond to God with works, not with the belief that we should show grace as a way of earning that which we've already been given, but we show grace. We share grace as a response, as a thank you to our Heavenly Father who showers us with good beyond our comprehension. In a few minutes, we're going to come to this table down here, and we're going to participate in a meal that remembers Jesus' final meal. That meal is one that reminds us of his sacrifice. It's a meal that is a gift. It's a gift of grace. It's a reminder that where we were powerless, God could undertake something much greater. It's a meal not of the body, but of the soul. It is a gift of grace. Please pray with me. Gracious God, we thank you. We thank you that you poured your grace down upon us, that you have showered us more richly than we can imagine, that while we do not deserve what you have given us, that we can accept it. We pray that you will open our eyes to see the world around us, not through eyes of flesh, but through a lens of grace that helps us to see each other as you see us. For we know that in your eyes, we are all equal at the foot of your cross. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.